And we're going to turn now to the Word of God. Uh, Even though this morning starts off the Advent season, a new time in the church calendar, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we are going to be continuing our sermon series looking at the Gospel of John. But over the next four weeks, we're going to see something uh, unique in the Gospels, and that is Jesus doing and saying things that kind of puzzle people. People in Jesus' time were beginning to expect Him to do certain things and say certain things, and when He doesn't do them, they begin to ask the question, can this be the Christ? Or maybe the emphasis is in a different place. Can this be the Christ? Just like you and I, we expect Jesus to do certain things. Now, this morning we have for us familiar events, things that you probably have heard that Jesus did but feel disconnected from. They happened so long ago, they don't really have an impact on us. God wants you to know that Jesus did these things. He wants you to hear that Jesus worked in these ways so that you might ask the question, how is Jesus working in my life? So let's listen to what Jesus did in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us. Oh God, we come to you this morning thankful that you have recorded these events for us, but more thankful that you have sent your Spirit to us so that these words contain the words of life. I pray that through the Spirit we might hear the ways at which Jesus is at work in our lives, the ways in which you are changing us, you are meeting us, you are caring for us, and you are calling us to trust in you pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Proper preparation prevents poor performance. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. 
Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. You know these sayings. You've heard them before, these phrases that we use in order to remind us that if we plan our steps, if we work hard, we can help prevent failure in the future. Maybe a parent or a coach or a boss has said this to you or something like it to you in order to encourage you to prepare ahead of time. Maybe you yourself have said it as a parent or a coach or a boss to help mitigate future failure, future problems. There's another saying that comes to mind, though, that puts all of those to shame from the great philosopher slash heavyweight champion Mike Tyson. Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Now, I've never been in a boxing match. I don't think most of you have either. However, we know that that is absolutely correct. All the planning in the world, all the the prior preparation, any visualization tactics that we might have go right out the window when things begin to suddenly fall apart, when we're shocked by the unexpected and we're left with a head that's swimming trying to grasp at reality. When things begin to fall apart, what are we supposed to do? Where are we supposed to turn? The two scenes that I just read for us paint a picture of the disciples in two such situations. And the question that we are going to ask this morning is the question that they don't ask, which is, what is Jesus going to do about this? What help does Jesus bring in crisis? Now, I don't know about you, but that's not something I feel like I ask often. When chaos strikes, when things aren't going well, or they seem like they might fail, I don't often stop and ask the question, Jesus, what are you doing here? How are you going to engage with this? I, like most of you, just get to work. I work. I try really hard to solve or to prevent future failure. Or as I look at the future, things going poorly, I begin to worry. I grow anxious about the unknown possibilities. And I know you do the same. Work, 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 or worry, worry, worry. That's why we need these passages this morning. We need to see that when things fall apart, Jesus is enough. When things fall apart, Jesus is enough. Just two points this morning. Two scenes that we have for us of things going sideways, which is helpful because we're able to identify with at least one, if not both of them, because things are going to fall apart in our lives. It's going to happen. A byproduct of sin is that outside of God's intervention, things are going to move towards chaos, not order. We can easily see things falling apart in the second scene, can't we? Out on the lake in the evening, It's pitch black. The disciples are in a boat. They're crossing the sea to the other side, to the city of Capernaum. Jesus is not with them. Verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Yeah, that's the correct response. It's night. It's pitch black. They're in the middle of a very large lake. There's a strong windstorm, and there's a dude walking on the water towards them. They should be frightened. As Bob mentioned a couple weeks ago, there was a a prevailing belief back then that bodies of water contained spirits or demons or ghosts. And if the water was stirred up, it was not just due to the wind, but there was some kind of supernatural event 
that that supernatural being was causing. So seeing something walking on the water, a human, it was like that moment in a horror movie where the monster is finally revealed. They should be frightened. That makes sense. Storm, boat, night, supernatural ghost being thing walking on the water, it's chaos. Life is falling apart all at once. Maybe that feels familiar to you, not in those specifications, but maybe life falling apart all at once feels familiar. If not, let's look at this first scene. Jesus has been doing many signs, teaching many things around the region of Galilee, and now He heads down to the sea, probably in the mountainous area near the town of Bethsaida on the northeastern side of the lake. And they're in the mountainous region because there is a great crowd around them, and there's enough room for Him to begin to teach and to work miracles and to talk to people. As He sits down, He sees there is a large crowd. Verse 10 tells us there are about 5,000 men. No doubt that doesn't take into account the women and the children who are there with Him. And we know there's at least one child because it's someone who has brought their afternoon snack that will come into play later. Jesus turns to Philip, and He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus asks Philip in particular because Philip was from Bethsaida. This is his hometown. He should know what to do. It's like asking Javier, who's from San Jose, where's a great place to eat? He knows where a great place to eat is. Philip should know how to respond, but he clearly doesn't. His response is, Jesus, you could spend 200 denarii. That's like eight months' worth of wages then. You could spend 200 denarii. That's not going to be enough. There's nothing we can do. We can't do anything to help these people. Now, that might seem like nothing more than a practical answer, but if we remember that Jesus has been teaching and training the disciples for over a year, and one of the things that He has harped on over and over again is that the kingdom of God initiated by Jesus, is focusing on meeting the practical needs of people. It's not just about teaching. It's not just about intellectual or spiritual enlightenment, but Jesus comes to meet the physical needs of people, and His disciples who will carry on His kingdom after Him are supposed to do so as well. Jesus is asking Philip, how are we going to be doing the ministry I'm training you in? This is your place. You should know how to do that. Philip has no response. Philip comes across as somewhat incompetent. Things are not going well. Andrew, another disciple, who also happens to be from Bethsaida, doesn't do much better. Verse 9, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many people? We can't do anything, Jesus. We can't meet any physical needs. Look at what we've got. We've got nothing. There's a large crowd, no food. Your boss is questioning you as to how you are going to promote the values of your organization in your hometown, and you've got nothing. Things are falling apart, slowly but surely. Does that feel familiar to you? Does that build a little bit of anxiety in your life? Do things falling apart sound like something you've experienced recently? Often life comes crashing down all at once, Sometimes it falls apart slowly, bit by bit, as it devolves into chaos. You can see it coming from a mile away, but there's not really anything that you can do about it. Three weeks ago, 
the Sunday that we emerged from daylight savings time, five minutes before our service started, we pushed the little button on the iPad that says go live in order to broadcast the service on YouTube and Facebook, and nothing happened. The software didn't update for daylight savings time, so it thought that we had already broadcast an hour before. I tried really hard to figure it out, nothing, no live stream. Wilson and I came back in the middle of the week, fixed it. The next Sunday, two Sundays ago, pushed the little button on the iPad, nothing happens again. No live stream. I spent several hours in the middle of the week two weeks ago, so I could, we could actually live stream last week and this week. Hi. But in those two Sundays and the weeks after, I felt so incompetent, so exposed, and so anxious Because over the past two years of COVID, the tech stuff was my responsibility. It was my hometown, as it were. I should know what to do. I could do nothing. I had no answers. Things were falling apart. And I've heard similar emotions from many of you over the past several weeks and months. Things like, We've lived here for X number of years. I'm working really hard, but with the market the way it is, I don't think we'll ever be able to afford a house. I left my old job, my old team, my old company for a new one, for more money, a better boss, whatever it is. And now this situation, it's it's unbearable. I'm probably going to have to find a new job. Should I get my kids vaccinated? What if I am told that I'm required to get my kids vaccinated? vaccinated? What will people think if I do or if I don't? Omicron, there's a new COVID variant. What if things shut down again? What will happen? Sooner or later, things will fall apart. Slowly and anxiety-inducing or all at once with a surprise. It's going to happen. So, what do you do then? Where do you go? Or the question that I asked at the beginning of the sermon, what does Jesus bring to crisis? This passage shows us that when things fall apart, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. This is one thing I think uh, following, about following Jesus that we miss, that I miss so easily. Jesus doesn't come at the disciples in the midst of crisis with a plan. He doesn't come at them with some ritual or some pattern or a prayer that they need to pray. He doesn't come at them with advice or with a strategy. He just comes to them himself alone. Jesus is enough. That's the connection between these two scenes. If you've got Jesus, you've got enough. He asks Philip where to go get food. Yes, because Philip is from Bethsaida, but also for another reason. Verse 6, he says this, He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus is the answer to the question, where are we going to go to find food to feed all these people? Jesus is the answer. He knew what he would do. When the disciples are out in the boat and the full fury of heaven and earth are raining terror upon the waves, Jesus comes to them, verse 20, He said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus didn't say, let me show you the right direction to point the bow of the boat so you can get there faster. Let me show you the correct rowing form and the right stroke so that we can all work in unison and get there. 
Jesus says in Greek, ego eimi, I am. Jesus uses the exact same wording that God used when He revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush on Mount Sinai. I am. I am that I am. Jesus, who is God, is self-validating. He needs no reference, no verification. Jesus declares to the disciples, terrified in the boat as life is falling apart around them, I am. And that's enough. Jesus is enough. Whether life is falling apart slowly, bit by bit, or all at once, Jesus is enough. Primarily because Jesus addresses the source of chaos. He's the only one who is able to address the source of chaos. He's the only one who has addressed the source of our chaos, our own sin. Sin has broken our relationship with God. It has condemned us to die. It has thrown all of creation into chaos and brokenness. And Jesus is the only one who can and has done something about it. In His life of perfect obedience, in His death, in His resurrection, Jesus has cut sin off at the knees. He has brought order to chaos. He has repaired our relationship with God. He served our death penalty so that now life with God is guaranteed. If you have Jesus, you have all that. You have more than enough. Now, you might be quick to think, okay, Stephen, it's that easy. It's that simple. I'm just supposed to be happy with Jesus, taking care of my sin. Jesus doesn't want me to worry about my own happiness or feeling useful or feeling valuable. Jesus wants me to ignore the security of my family, the financial security, right? Oh, Jesus doesn't care for my own physical well-being or the, the health of my children. I'm just supposed to focus on the spiritual stuff. None of that stuff matters. Jesus is enough. Well, that's not what that means. Saying Jesus is enough doesn't mean that any of that other stuff that has caused you anxiety or worry doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that you should just forget about them and move on and focus on God, let go and let God. It means if you have Jesus, you approach those things differently. They cannot get to you the way that they could if you didn't have Jesus. You respond out of security, not out of fear. My family uh, celebrated Thanksgiving up in Tahoe, and on Friday we drove up to North Star and we went ice skating there on that little ice skating rink they have in the middle of it. I was skating with Margaret, our five-year-old, and even though I'm not great at ice skating, I am big enough and strong enough, and she is small enough that just by holding her hand, I can prevent her from falling. She and I held hands the whole time. And if she started to slip or lose her balance, I could simply hold her up, and her feet would start going like this, like a giraffe learning to walk. But she knew that I had a hold of her, that she would not fall. And so she was able to try, to work hard, pulling herself along by the rail, some of it, skating as fast as she could for others of it, and trying to turn, knowing that if she began to slip, I had her by the hand. We didn't look like Olympians out there, but she didn't get hurt, and she was able to have fun because she knew that I was holding her hand, guaranteeing she didn't fall. 
I've said this a couple times in the sermon, and we often talk about being a Christian, about following Jesus as having Jesus, if you have Jesus. But these passages suggest that it's more accurate to say, Jesus has you. If you have faith in Jesus, Jesus has you. He's got your hand. He will hold you fast, preventing you from falling. Now, that might look miraculous sometimes, like Jesus walking on water, or it might look simple, like multiplying a resource as it is passed from one person to the next. Did you notice the difference between Jesus' actions in these two sections? He shows up miraculously on the water, but when He multiplies the bread and the fish, it's a subtle work. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He distributed it to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. It just happened. He did this. It, it multiplied as it was passed slowly. In both cases, Jesus' work is unexpected, but in both cases, the action itself is not as important as the actor. The reality is, it doesn't matter how Jesus works. It matters that it is Jesus who is working. Now, that's hard for us to, to settle in, to rest in the, the truth that it doesn't matter how Jesus is working. It matters that it is Jesus who it is working, who is working in your lives. Jesus is enough. If Jesus has you, Jesus is enough. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that none of the disciples stopped to ask, what is Jesus going to do about this? None of them realized that having Jesus was enough. But could you imagine if they had? Just one of them. Jesus turns to Philip and says, Philip, where are we to go to buy so much bread? Philip responds, 200 denarii worth of bread isn't enough to do this. What if Andrew stopped and said, Philip, remember, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman that he had a well of water that will never run dry. Jesus, what are you going to do to provide bread for people? You are all we need to provide bread for people. We need other people to remind us of what Jesus has done and has said. It was when they heard Jesus announce Himself on the water that they were calm. We need people to point us to the very voice of Jesus to tell us what He has done in their lives, which means we have to let things fall apart with others. We need each other. You need to hear how things are making me anxious. I need to hear how things are making you anxious so that I can say, do you not remember what Jesus said? So that you can tell me, remember what Jesus did in my life, how He worked in me. We need to be reminded. And I'm reminded, actually, of the Longfellow poem, Christmas Bells, which we sing often at Advent as I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Right? Maybe you've heard this story before, but Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the poet, in 1861, he lost his, his wife in a terrible house fire in which he was also brutally burned trying to save her, burned around the face. He spent the next year recovering. He grew his beard out to cover the scars. And then in 1863, his son secretly left home against the wishes of his father to join the Union Army to fight in the Civil War. In November, he was shot, and Henry had to move next to the hospital in order to care for his son for the next several months. And it was on Christmas Day in 1863 that he wrote the poem, 
which talks about things going on in the country, in his own personal life, and how disjointed it felt from Christmas. The last two stanzas say this, And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Jesus is that peace on earth. He is goodwill toward men. In Advent, we await not something, but someone. At Christmas, we celebrate not the stuff Jesus brings, but Jesus Himself. Jesus Himself is enough. If Jesus has you, you have enough. Let's pray. God, we thank You. We thank You for Your Son. We thank You for His incarnation his life, his death, and his resurrection. We thank you that he knows what it is like when life falls apart. Slowly over time and suddenly all at once, he has experienced it, so he knows exactly what we need. We thank you that as you look upon us, that you cry out for us to come to you in the midst of life falling apart. And the cry is, it is finished. We thank You that in Jesus we have received new life. We pray this in His mighty and powerful name. Amen.